0: This is the London Fintech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now.
1: Hi, this is Mike Ballaman and this is London Fintech Podcast, episode 170. Brought to you in association with SmartPension and the enlistedboard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Andy Rea, who was, until last month, head of Munich Re's market changing London Insurtech subsidiary Digital Partners to discuss Is Insurtech going mainstream globally? Right, I think that's a clear question, so let's set a benchmark for the least waffly intro ever. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Andy. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me back. So, uh, it's been a little while since you were on the show. Insurtech's changed quite a bit uh, in the meantime. I I think without letting you do any false modesty, in large part uh, as a result of your contribution, Munich Re's contribution, in terms of what you were on the show last time, talking about um, reinsurance as a, a service. But before we get on to that, we're sitting in a rather different position this time. I'm sitting at home looking at a very sort of foggy Monday morning in... December, and I don't know if it's foggy where you are, uh, and you were telling me in terms of the exciting things that one can do in the new, the new, new normal, version 3.0, what we're at now, 4.0, I lose track. You went to a pub recently. Good God. I did. At least, uh-huh. the, at least the garden of a pub I went
2: yesterday, yeah, with a couple of buddies. Wasn't it a bit nippy? Um, it was extremely cold, yes. But it was really ni- it was really nice to be out. It was very funny seeing how busy the kitchen was with all of these people who didn't really want to eat but that's the only way to get a
1: get a quiet pint these days. And you have to eat you have to eat if you're outside do. You? I I mean I lose track of this goddamn. Yes,
2: so it's the rule appears to be this substantial meal. Nobody quite knows what a substantial meal is.
1: Yes, and uh, famously for those people who are fortunate enough not to be in the UK, there was a debate with various cabinet ministers contradicting themselves last week as to whether a scotch egg was or wasn't uh, a substantial meal, which reflects the insanity. The One thing just occurred to me, and Bridget and I went to Borough Market on Saturday morning, which we would normally never do uh, on any Saturday because it's packed out with tourists and, and people like that, uh, let alone in December. But it was very convivial and very jolly and just, it, it gives a lie to all these fake Polls saying that most people want to be locked in their lavatory for the next 10 years, that it was just fallen jostling around and that. But the the thing that occurs to me was that you could certainly get takeaway mulled cider, which seemed a strange idea, but also mulled wine. And of course, the one or two pubs in Borough Market. Now the pubs were sectioned off. So I don't know whether if you'd stood outside in the sectioned off pub, that one that's opposite Monmouth Coffee Shop, you would have had to have a substantial scotch egg or whatever, whereas if you bought Mold wine or mulled cider from the market you could wander around and drink it it may be part of the anomalous rules
2: who, who knows my friend was telling me about the in uh new york during prohibition they had a similar their similar rule you were allowed alcohol with a meal and so bars used to serve the so-called rubber sandwich which was literally a piece <laughs> of rubber between two pieces of bread which you received and left on and left on your table while you enjoyed your drink oh, i wonder whether treasure. that's maybe where we're heading to
1: Yes, yes, well, I was very saddened uh, this morning to read somebody's comment below, below the line on some article who said they'd been to a secret underground Christian church uh, where people were allowed to shake hands and hug and, and, and socialise and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so, but a part of 2,000 years later, the, sort of, the, the church is uh, underground if you want to live normally. Anyway, moving on from that kind of uh, insanity, and I do toss up as to whether we're in 1984 or Brave New World and hopefully... 2021, uh, hope will uh, spring forth. Your career journey, Andy, has been sort of uh, an interesting one, I I think sort of fairly or unfairly. I sort of caricature it as you're one of, like, goats. You do something and you you achieve a large measure of success, and and when you've done that, you then hop over to (laughs) to another crag (laughs) and start the process again. And maybe perhaps slightly giving away the the punchline here, but you're about to sort of leap from the the pinnacle of one crag to to yet another, so... uh, uh, that's my summary, but actually, what's the real facts of, uh, about your career journey? What's brought you here today? Just an inability
2: to settle down anything, I think. <laughs> it, it's funny you see people as you go through a corporate crew. You see people who understand what you have to do to get to the top of a corporation, and you know you 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 have to mind your p's and q's. You have to stay in lane. You have to reap your success. So if you you know if you do something successful in a business, then you need to stay there a year or two so that the success that you've produced sort of comes onto your balance sheet. And I just found that period unutterably tedious. I found myself unable to not meddle and change things. So if you have a business that's working well, then if you're my kind of person, you just have to move on and go and do something else because if you keep on meddling, you'll probably break it. So yeah, my career has been a a series of interesting things which I sort
1: of leave when when I get bored. And very briefly, what's the sort of list of interesting incarnations you've had to date?
2: Initially, uh, the, uh, the primary insurance market, so uh, most of the first 10 years of my career were in the in the life market, uh, usually around marketing and, and product. A little bit of time doing doing finance. Then, uh, then I went consulting, um, started Oliver Wyman's insurance practice, then joined Munich Re, I uh, spent five years running Munich Re's uh, life business in UK, Asia Pacific, and Africa. Got a lot of air miles through that. Uh, and then I spent the last four years um, building and running Digital Partners, um, which is a, a, an InsurTech investment and partnership vehicle. Um, so by the end of 2020, uh, we'd written about 500 million of premiums through InsurTech brands. Um, and we'd invested uh, about 400 million of venture capital and growth equity. So I'm moving on now to uh, do some non-exec stuff. Uh, hopefully to do a PhD
1: sometime next year, um, and also just have a little bit more time to think. Excellent. Well, it's very interesting. Well, I've got a very good book I can sell you on <laughs> being a non-exec, um, which I spent some time writing. I mean, what you describe reminds me of a little bit about the sort of the earlier. Uh, half of, of my career. I started in tech for a couple of years as the first job. I then moved into investment management. Uh, and when I took over the fixed interest business, it, it had good performance, but it was sporadic. It sort of came and went. It was a craft, really. And so I kind of industrialised that. So the performance uh, was much more regular, predictable, as it were. But it's the same sentiment as you. I, I, I used to think of it as a low boredom threshold. But with um, sort of hindsight, it's a kind of entrepreneur type thing, which is that I created a sausage machine but having created a sausage machine, I had no interest in running the sausage machine because I knew how it worked. And I had colleagues and I recruited someone to take over for from me, from Morgan Grenfell, who were, without using the word sheep, but more like sheep than goats. I mean, they, they, were, they were very happy to have a process-driven life and they turn up and, and do that and it was certainly not without its interest. And then I went over to be global head of risk and nobody knew what that was at all and it didn't exist and I worked out what that was and, and all that kind of stuff. And then after I'd done that for a while, well, the sort of novelty wore off with that. And I thought, oh, I'll let leave and uh, um, I'll set up my own, um, what would, would now be called a, a tech fintech. And I did that, and then i have done a, done a bunch of other things. And in a sense, that model is relatively rare, which, which it needs to be, because if the whole bloody world wants to keep changing things all the time, there's nobody to turn up and sort of do the day job day in, day out. But the one thing that I remember from back in the day in Japan was that in Japan, that kind of model albeit in in one of the huge companies, was pretty much the regular model for the fast track. And it was called the spiral staircase. That as you progressed upwards in Mitsubishi or or whatever, you went through various jobs and you went up this spiral staircase. And by the time you got to the top, you knew a lot about a lot of the business, as opposed to the sort of more Americanized model that the world has gone into in terms of big co's, where there's a hell of a lot of speciation and specialisation, which is you know a hell of a lot about, for example, the front-left tyre of a car, and you're the bloody expert on that, and you rise to the main board, but you may just know about that. You won't have done the other tyres, you won't have done the engine, you won't have done the paint and and all this things. So although what we've done seems anomalous, there are are parts of the world where actually it's kind of the the rule rather than the exception. I mean, what, what is your thought in terms of the necessity for breadth in... In all kinds of business, I mean, the same thing must be happening in fintech. If you're a successful insured techie person, it would be very hard to, you know, one day go off and do payments tech or something.
2: Yeah, as for entrepreneurs, I'm not sure it is that hard. I I think capital, venture capital, understands that um, that the skills you need in building a business are not very much about the knowledge of that particular industry. The most important thing I think about... Um, uh, for an entrepreneur, about in terms of what you you know is is about knowing what you don't know and appreciating that if you're trying to disrupt, you know, a part of a giant, long-lasting industry, then probably there are people in that um, who are running that uh, that long-lasting industry who are extremely good at what they what they do and and also learning on the back of peers who are extremely good at what they do. So you have to come in a little bit humble. You know, I think about. Uh, one of the biggest partnerships that we built um was with next insurance um uh and that was that's a partnership um between guy goldstein and Nisim. Nissim they've worked um they've worked before worked together for several years through uh, through a bunch of uh of different startups um they've been you know successful entrepreneurs but always in in sort of hard technology you know technology that 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 doesn't have a sort of nice customer face like insurance, and they came to insurance because they thought there was something that they could do with that technology. The way that they could, um, you know, understand customers better. They could uh, insurance uh, involves an awful lot of data. One of the things they did in the past was uh, was about processing large volumes of data very quickly. So they thought there's something we could do. But what was interesting about uh, uh, about Guy in particular was that guy's start point was always to uh, seek out expertise in the industry that he was sort of going into and and to, and to sit and learn so i had so many conversations with uh, um, uh, with guy in the particularly in the early days in which um, he, he would just uh, try and suck uh, information and understanding out of you and then eventually try to make the right hires so that he would have people um, who who uh, thought like him and could build a business like him, but who had uh, you know enough uh, enough knowledge of what they were trying to do. And it's and it struck me that you know with, with someone like Guy, if if he hadn't latched on to to, uh, to me into the Digital Partners team, he would have found somebody else, and he would have latched onto them and he would have done the same thing with them. So you know we were sort of replaceable. But Guy's not replaceable. His skills in how to build a business are, are, are what really makes a difference. In some large companies, you don't really get that diversity of, of thought anymore.
1: Yes, 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 it's it's a good point. It's too early on a, a Monday morning and I should have drunk um, more coffee. Because where the analogy breaks down is that, um, as you say, brilliant serial entrepreneurs have a record of innovating in often very different industries and their core skill set is building a business. So. Will, co-founder of Smart Pension, sponsors the podcast. His first business is Arena Flowers, and they sell millions of stems of flowers every day. And then the second is Smart Pension, and they're both doing brilliantly well in utterly different um, domains. And I think one of the things that means this is a little bit easier than it would have been in the sort of, for example, 1980s Japan, is that a lot of business these days is about data and business processes and computers and, and stuff like that. So actually, the, the, the format of the business, as it were, if, if businesses were buildings, uh, is much more similar. And with lockdown, I've been seeing lots of small businesses around here. i have got a very nice wine merchant in um, Westerham. if anyone's near Westerham, Quercus Wines are, are, are brilliant, Matthew's brilliant. But talking to Matthew about the wine business, for example, I think it would be very hard to step, for example, into the wine trade. <laughs> without knowing anything about the wine trade. But that's the kind of old-fashioned bricks and mortary thing where it is much harder to sort of leap around because in something like the wine business, you need to have acquired, you know, a decade or so's contacts in the industry, knowing where to source stuff and all that kind of thing. And, and if, for example, you were a great entrepreneur moving into the wine business, um, sure, you could hire people to do that, but unless you were trying to be the new odd bins and, and roll out something across the country... It's just a different scale of business. Uh, anyway, interesting. So let's just dive into the main course. Is InsurTech going global? Has it really sort of changed the world? Uh, maybe you could just give us a little bit of an update on what you were talking to us about last time, which is reinsurance as a service, which uh, in my simple-minded way, I recall as being the idea that uh, it was, it, it, for some time it was much harder to be an InsurTech than it was a sort of FS tech, as it were. Um, or banking tech business, because the regulator would come along and say, hello, little insurtech, you're an insurance company, aren't you? Uh, no, sir. Yes, you are. You're insuring stuff. To insure stuff, you need a billion dollars and you need a billion dollars of contracts because it's all risky, da 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 So it was slower to get going than, for example, peer-to-peer, uh, where they didn't turn up and tell peer-to-peers they were banks. But this reinsurance-as-a-service, or insurance-as-a-service, uh, enabled a rapid growth in the ecology of insurtechs Because people could come along to the likes of you uh, and plug into uh, a reinsurer or insurer and lay off their insurance risk, at which point the regulator said, oh, yeah, you're not insuring because you've got a proper big business with trillion dollars of capital behind you. uh, And then it really took off. So that's my little sort of fag packet, which may be similar to what people who don't know about insurance tech have in their minds as listeners. So maybe you want to correct that picture to the extent that it's wrong uh, and or briefly update us on on how that kind of approach has changed the market.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that picture is, is exactly right. And I think what we've done in the last four years is we've proved that that is the model. That's the future of, uh, of insurance. You know, fundamentally, that, that model is built on the idea that, that there's, only three, there's only three roles in, in insurance. First of all, you have to have capital because you're, you're, you're taking risk against an uncertain event. So somebody has to put the money up. Then secondly, somebody has to deal with the customer. Whether that's online, phone, whatever it is, somebody needs to take the take the customer's details, take their money, and record it all in a way that's safe. And then the only other thing you need is a platform between capital and customer, and that platform is actually relatively simple. I mean, at the at the end of the day, it's really just a database, right? You know, as long as as long as I know that 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 I'm covering Mike Balaban's car and I've Got the capital. I'm holding the capital for for Mike Balaban's car, Then that's more or less all I need. And of course, because there's risk in that, then a regulator is going to want to have a look at that. So that creates, a, you know, a little bit more complexity. But again, not a lot. If you try and break it down and you try and keep it as simple as you possibly can, then that's what you have. And if you look at how the industry is structured. You go to a broker, the broker goes to an insurer, and the insurer goes to the reinsurer. So capital is partly the reinsurer, partly the insurer, customer is partly the insurer, partly the broker. Uh, and as a result, no one really knows where the platform is. Um, and so everybody, you know, builds and, and, and overlaps and you get something that's complex and expensive. If you designed the industry from scratch, you wouldn't design today's industry. The clearest example of that is if you look at uh, if you look at the big brands in UK motor insurance, you look at AA or Tesco, you buy your insurance through Tesco. Is Tesco a broker or are they an insurer?
1: Don't know. Waitrose doesn't do it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, they will eventually, I'm sure. And you know, honestly most customers will have no idea the answer to that question. And one of the things you see actually in uh, in the likes of Tesco's is that they are both a broker and an insurer. So they sell you a policy as a broker and it might be a Tesco policy or it might be a someone else's policy. That industry structure seems to me to to make no sense if you if you look from where we are now. I I understand the history, but where we are now, you don't need that industry structure. What you need is Someone providing, someone providing capital, and that was what, uh, what Munich Re did. Someone providing a platform which will connect a, a customer-facing entity and, uh, and that capital. And that was what digital partners did, owned by, by Munich Re. And then you have somebody providing a fantastic customer experience um, at the front end, and that's what uh, our Insurtech partners are doing.
1: Right, okay, so, to be devil's advocate, a quick summary is that this reinsurance-as-a-service, or being able to plug into insurers, has really helped the insurance market and insurtech market in London take off in recent years. So, uh, again, keeping it uh, simple, uh, has it changed the world? So, from one perspective, yes it has, because these companies have started. From another sort of perspective, just as a simple person, not in uh, insurtech, no, it hasn't, because when I go and, rein- when I go and uh, get my annual car insurance, which I need to do today, I'll go down there, and it'll say, legal in general, Liverpool, Victoria, or Tesco's, or people who didn't, didn't even know insurers, uh, or whatever, and there'll be a bunch of names that were exactly the same as 10 years ago. Well, OK, maybe Tesco's wasn't there, but it's the same, same, same thing. So... That's the simple view, which is uh, it's changed it a little bit, but not a lot. Now, uh, that's the point of this podcast, which is to get beyond this sort of simple thing, which is no, it hasn't really changed very much. And yes, it kind of sort of changed a few things. So in terms of breaking down to the extent that it, uh, it, it has changed it, uh, the institutional structure is pretty much the same as it was some time ago. Munich really has been here for a long time. One of the things that you were pointing to, Andy, was indicators of market activity. So M&As, IPOs, funding and, and stuff like that as an indicator that actually it's changed more than the, the layman or the, the podcaster might think.
2: Yes. Uh, I mean, I, I suppose it's, to set the scene, you always have to keep in your head three basic things about change and, and, and insurance. Firstly, the industry is huge. It's about a $2 trillion revenue industry. Premiums are about $5 trillion, of which 60% is, is the actual cost of the risk. So, so the, the, the activities in the chain are generating revenue of about $2 trillion. Secondly, it's a slow clock speed industry. There's a fantastic book by Charlie Fine of MIT called Clock Speed, which is about how quickly industries turn over. So you think about a, um, a retail industry or, you know, uh, things, things that, that come out in and out of fashion, um, uh, computer gaming, for example, you think about how rapidly those things turn over and how that fosters innovation, whereas insurance is something you look at once a year at best. And then the third thing is just change takes a long time. I would argue that Microsoft changed the, the computer industry. But Microsoft's revenues were less than a $100 million 10 years after it started. There's almost no tech which is 10 years old. So where you should expect we are now um, for the four or five years in is you should look really for early indicators. To my mind, there's three. One is that the, the capital going into the industry has got bigger and more serious. The capital has moved from West Coast to East Coast if you like, you know, we've seen three IPOs in 2020. I don't suppose there's any other industry that's had three IPOs in 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 a pandemic year.
1: Is that in America or UK?
2: They're all in the US. The UK is significantly behind in terms of size. That that just it, it, you know the scale of the industry in in the US means that, that that growth is faster. But we will get a bunch more IPOs in the US uh, next year. There will be at least one in Europe, I could think of two or three who could IPO uh, in Europe next year, and at least three who will IPO in uh, in the US. So, you know, this is significant amounts of serious capital going into businesses.
1: Yes, I mean, just for sim- for the sake of simplicity... Once you've IPO'd, you are sort of in, in simple black and white terms, you've become an institution that's part of the institutional framework, as it were. You're, you know, you're no longer just a startup trying to disrupt it. You're a bricks and mortar business. You're a PLC or whatever you are in America. You've got shareholders and, and all the jazz that are just the same as all other institutions. You've kind of joined the sort of big boys club, as it were.
2: And that's significant because it's it's a different kind of capital coming in then it's capital that's you know there for the long term it's capital that really that that's liquid that has a lot of choices about where it, where it wants to go the second thing i would point to is um this is um a very insurance insurance market geeky um but if you look at um you look at the lloyd's market you know which is to some extent the the beginnings of insurance and, and the most traditional structure of the industry what you see in Lloyd's is firstly very rapid technological progress. Uh, Lloyd's recently published Blueprint Two, which is um, a way to make the entire market uh, uh, be able to trade, uh, not just remotely but also automatically. Which you know is so far away from the image of Lloyd's that we all have of brokers walking around with with paper. But the other thing that's happening in Lloyd's there's a there's a new syndicate. It's called Key K I. And uh, a Lloyd syndicate is a provider of capital to the market. So traditionally, a Lloyd syndicate is a capital provider, and it's fronted by an underwriter, who is the the guy or the lady who is um, who is going to make the underwriting decisions as to where they deploy that capital. So Key has the capital. Um, it has significant backers. I think Blackstone is one of its uh, is one of its backers. It's it's uh, a significant scale, but Key doesn't have an underwriter. Key has a machine. So Key is going to oh. take complex risks in an entirely automated way and you know it's taking risks for you know large property fire for offshore oil rigs all sorts of stuff I mean really complex risks and it's found a way of taking these uh, algorithmically they are the first uh, of at least three or four that we know about in the market that are under development and that's massive you know in in 10 years time I suspect most Lloyd's capital will be that algorithmic capital, which is just gone. gone.
1: There's a couple of things in there just to just deconstruct them for the listeners. I mean, the, the first is for those who aren't aware. Lloyd's Insurance of London has, I think, without being unfair, quotes struggled unquotes for or oh, at least a couple of decades with trying to quotes sort its IT out in 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 very simple terms and very simplistically uh, hasn't been successful uh, at all and it's been a bit of a nightmare. And in terms of your clock speeds book. It is an industry that's been going for centuries uh, and has proved very hard to change. So the blueprint two is an important leap forward uh, in itself, which is that, uh, and maybe you can explain a little bit more to listeners about why blueprint two might be successful, whereas the the previous more monolithic approaches uh, hadn't. So that's uh, a great sign that forgetting things like insured techs as small businesses, that the digitization of insurance and the digitization of business processes as a whole is like a, a sort of a tide that's spreading over everything, regardless. You know, even if you're the most sort of old school business in the city, which perhaps Lloyd's has been for some time, it's affecting you. On the algorithmic capital, I'm very interested to hear about that. And we could have a, a whole podcast, maybe we will at some, some point uh, on that. Um, and it certainly was giving me uh, bad LSD flashbacks to the sort of mid 90s when, with laptops appearing, algorithmic trading was appearing in FS, and given my role that i mentioned before, it was up to me to assess this, and certainly some, one of the funds we had did extremely well. For so quite a while, I'll put this one just sort of on the whiteboard and pick it up at some stage in the future. The challenge with that is the whole question of, is the world modelable? And again, just to put a simple sketch on the whiteboard, well, the answer is that certain parts of of life are modelable over a certain timescale but then what tends to happen, this is precisely what we saw with um, a very important uh, US, a very early US hedge fund, which had the best sharp ratio in the business for 10 years until it didn't in the 90s, trading in treasury bonds, was that life, let's forget anything else, life has these massive discontinuities. A nuclear power station blows up, a virus comes, and governments overreact. So, my sort of rough fag packet on that is that computers can do very well for periods of time, but there always comes a, a, a period of time when you need the person standing next to the computer, what wrote the program, who says, oh, hang on. In the case of, um, I've forgotten, I think something like the EMS fell apart or something like that. And, and all the modelling on this hedge fund had relied on the sort of the EMS being there. So they, they had a, what they called a box trade. They were long French equities, short G- French bonds, long German equities, short German bonds. And there's tons of statistics and it made a fortune until the EMS broke or, or, or something like that. So the, the thing that would concern me, and this is very much up Lloyd's Strasser, which is the sort of... Uh, uh, abnormal or, or long-tail risks is that uh, algorithmic trading will work very well uh, will suck capital into it and then something's going to happen that nobody anticipated that the computer didn't anticipate because the computer ain't that bright the computer doesn't know about all of uh, all of reality but anyway let's not get sucked into that um, time's going on uh, so anyway so just putting that one uh, to one side it's, it's a very valid uh, conversation and I'd, I'd like to, to sort of have it with you but as I say from my perspective it was sort of a, a bad trip flashback because i would heard this all before in a different market 25 years ago but more fundamentally, on the structure of Lloyd's, uh, you mentioned the Blueprint 2, and I, and I sort of casually mentioned the fact that Lloyd's had tried and not really succeeded in prior decades with this. Why do you think that Blueprint 2 is, is something that's going to be more successful than the prior initiatives have been at Lloyd's?
2: I think Blueprint 2 is an idea whose, whose time has come. The previous initiatives, you already used the word, uh, they can be characterised as being monolithic, and they were monolithic because that was the really the only way that people thought about systems. You know, if you were, um, if you wanted to, you run any kind of entity. Um, you know, again, Lloyd's is a strange entity because it's a market, but um, but but any kind of company or, or or market. If you if you want to automate that in some way, then what you do is you sort of build a huge system to, to do all that. And the problem with Lloyd's. Companies could do that. They spent a vast amount of money. I'm not sure it was always very successful. But eventually, if there's a guy at the top who mandates what they're going to do, then they at least do do it. Whereas Lloyd's never had a, a guy at the top because it's a market. The market participants decide what they want to do. Blueprint two is uh, is the opposite of that. Blueprint two is a completely open architecture solution. The core of the you know the monolithic bit, if you like, is not a system. It's simply a set of data standards most of which more or less exist in, in various forms. It's just about pulling them together and saying, okay, these are our standards. And you know, I'm not minimising the amount of work involved in that, but it's a lot less than building a system for, for hundreds of millions of pounds. And what those standards uh, and the APIs that go along with them will enable the market to do is um, it will open it up to anybody who wants to build technology to make their uh, to make their trading better and what that does instead of instead of having to move at the pace of the slowest you now move at the pace of the fastest so that large company that wants to invest and that's really focused, they will see advantage in this and do it. That small or medium-sized company that just happens to have a technological edge or a technological interest in the um, in the principles will do something and will, and will move ahead. And they will move ahead much faster than the market because they'll move ahead on specific things. You know, if you read through the Blueprint 2 document, you read some things uh, which are presented almost as anodyne, but they're actually quite extraordinary. So they talk about... Um, Uh, Lots of market market participants use geo-imaging providers and Lloyd will see whether it can centrally contract to some geo-imaging providers and have the APIs all connected up just to make it easier for you. So fine, all very well. But these geo-imaging providers uh, are mostly about four years old. And if you go back four years, the geo-imaging providers were, you know, two young guys with, with computer science degrees looking at insurance going, wow, this is a strange world, isn't it? And all of a sudden, they're going to be part of the oldest insurance market in the world. That's a, a, an astonishing pace of change. And the amount of money in this is massive. That's the other real driver here. Um, you know, Lloyds estimates that the market will save £800 million pounds a year through this technological change. Um, so there is you know, so much momentum behind this. It seems to me inevitable, and it, and it will happen very, very quickly.
1: Excellent. Okay, so um, basically it's gone from a sort of 1980s model to a sort of 21st century model, and we know more about software development than we did. And the 1980s model, which is, uh, roughly speaking, oh, let's buy a big computer and have a big computer program which will do everything. And that works up to certain scales, but clearly it doesn't work when it's sort of uh, vast. And uh, as you say, we've, we've, we've now got the inverted model, which is... the uh, Uh, the distribution. Um, And the irony of this, of course, is it's the opposite of the way from the way that the state is going, which is that, if you like, the 1980s computer development model, and and Kleinwatts had something called Bankwide, which was going to be something which did everything for banking, uh, oh yes, didn't work out, as we might imagine, is that the power of Blueprint 2, it seems to me, is, as you say, which is that it it devolves the sort of creative intelligence and the value-adds to the lowest level, to the people who is the speciation, let's say for the sake of argument, I spend the rest of the week not renewing all my insurances, uh, but I write a a brilliant API on geo-imaging or something like that, well, then actually it's been delegated to me. Uh, And we've gone away from this kind of state centralism or corporate centralism of um, IT development from basically the 60s through to the 80s, where you had a head of IT and he was the baron of IT and, you know, he did the IT to this distributed um, model. And then just before we move on to the future, um, one of things you were mentioning to me before was that InsurTech has changed market behaviours.
2: Yeah. So this, if you like, is my third example of where you see change is if you look at what big companies do when they're trying to buy in a service. And you know, as insurers, you know, insurance is a complicated business. So we buy in all sorts of services. One little example, before you sell insurance in almost every country, you have to do financial crime, money laundering checks and the way you do that is you connect to one of the money laundering databases nobody builds this stuff themselves so you connect to you know Thomson Reuters or one of those guys so when we started digital partners we had to do this and we looked on you know Munich Re's list of of who they would use and it was all of those obvious names and none of them had technology that we thought was really helpful so we looked around And we saw uh, uh, what was then a rather small company called Comply Advantage. Great little company. We connected with them. They did the whole thing through APIs. It was very fast, worked very well. Now, if you're a large company and you're doing vendor selection for your your money laundering check, Comply Advantage will absolutely be on your list. Um, completely mainstream and it's certainly on you know Munich Re's mainstream list. Complete Advantage, meanwhile is not that small a company anymore. I still think I think I think they still don't have very many people but they've um they've got the best part of 100 million dollars in uh in funding and they're building they're now uh, uh, their system is being deployed in large companies um at real scale and it's eventually through that kind of change that we'll see the market evolve. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of examples like that of specialist suppliers to the market where the market has moved away from the large traditional provider and moved towards providers who are you know, technically more adept.
1: Yes, Charlie Dellingpole was on the show uh, earlier in the year. He's doing a brilliant job over there. Dellingpole a sort of feature quite large in my life this year, and I've been reading quite a bit of James Dellingpole, his brother, uh, on the Great Reset, but uh, less, less on that. So I take the point that in terms of the simple model I, I, I put at the beginning, which is, look, there's a bunch of companies, the names are still the same from 10 years ago, and oh sure, Tesco's has got involved, but they're a big company as well. And what you're pointing to at a more intelligent, nuanced level, which is that actually insurance comprises a whole ecosystem, and actually, if you look at the ecosystem a lot is happening and the fact that these aren't sort of you know vast institutions are, are really because they haven't been there sort of 50 years and maybe compliant varnish in 50 years is uh is, is huge who knows so i think that's pointing to the way to the future which is in a sense more of the the same of what we're seeing and in, in the ecosystem you will get some, some success on some of these players they will join the sort of the, the names that 10 20 30 years from now will just be seen as institutions by the next generation of insurance people or of fs people are there any points that you'd like to sort of bring up about the future that don't immediately leap out as, uh, as obvious to people?
2: I think the future of insurance um, is increasingly uh, about insurance being embedded. It's not about the big brand because the reality is people don't buy insurance on brand. You don't go to legal and general because you have a sort of brand affinity with legal in general. Uh, whereas, you know, the moment I mentioned Tesco's, you mentioned, you mentioned Waitrose. There's a <laughs> um, uh, So uh, Waitrose or John Lewis have just, um, uh, just lo- relaunched their insurance proposition with the idea of making it something that John Lewis customers would really appreciate and would see as somehow about John Lewis. And it's connected to the uh, other parts of the John Lewis shopping experience. They're doing that with Digital Partners, arranged by the European CEO of Digital Partners, Mark Dennis, who's the the brains behind this deal. There are no large companies in that John Lewis ecosystem. So John Lewis are are running the distribution. Uh, Digital Partners is running the regulatory platform, the compliance, uh, and providing the, the capacity, the technology. Is a small and short tech called ICE. Uh, the customer service is being led by a small insurer business called Hood. The claims is similarly outsourced. What John Lewis are building basically is an ecosystem, and the only thing you need to know about it as a John Lewis customer is that this is the John Lewis brand, uh, and you know that's what's important to people. You don't need all of the. Insurance brand, insurance distribution gubbins behind it. All you need is basically, a, you know, a, an ecosystem of of experts in the various activities that an insurance business needs to do to put itself together.
1: Interesting. Well, the ecosystem is clearly the, the flavour of this, whether it's the internal IT development in, in Lloyd's Insurance Market uh, in terms of Blueprint 2, or the development, as you just explained very clearly, of um, ecosystems uh, and the fact that brands with brand loyalty can do this, as you say. So before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there. I'd like to thank brand partners for the podcast, Smart Pension and Fast, Secure and Free. Check out their UK workplace pensions at autoenrolments.co. Dot UK. And I finally twisted Will's arm, and he may actually give me a more up-to-date brand message next time. Stay stay tuned. The Theunlistedboard.com resources to help you start making your board an engine of growth today. OK, Andy, so I lost track of whether you're sort of semi-retired or partly semi or something like that, but no doubt uh, you're still deeply in love with your uh, offspring, the... Uh, Digital Partners, would you like to give a few shout-outs to the various listeners around the world for what Digital Partners needs more of to be even more influential and more successful tomorrow than it is today?
2: Yes, absolutely. So um, I've stepped out. Um, if you want to reach me, the best way is through is through LinkedIn. But Digital Partners is continuing to to grow and to add uh, new partners. Digital Partners is looking for any tech business with a, a good distribution platform that's what they need what what digital partners can bring is is the capacity the technology the product the expertise so if you have a if you have a way to distribute uh, any kind of insurance then uh, then digital partners is is still very much the the home for you we do have competitors uh, in our space now which is great you know we we started the space and, and it's good to see others coming in. But Digital Partners is still, in my view now, as, a, as, a, as an, an independent outsider, um, still the best player on the market.
1: Excellent. Well, it's been an amazing journey. Uh, I, insurance is the market I'm least close to historically in FS, although I did money for captive insurance companies back in the day. And one of the things about being a bit further out, you're talking about being a non-executive, is it's just a bit easier to see the wood from the trees because actually... You, you're not in the trees, as it were, or the wood, which way it's supposed to work. And you've had immense success with that, Andy. And I'm quite sure that, uh, uh, as you say about entrepreneurs, that um, you may not be building businesses going and doing your PhD and all that, but uh, I'm sure that every success will flow to you in the f- future um, as you've uh, got some of the uh, values and virtues under your belt that uh, enable you to leverage the next part of your career. Uh, and I look forward to hearing it in a, a few years time, um, even if it is probably the the, the opportunity for the biggest entrepreneurial uh, business in the next five years in London, which is buying up bust pubs and resuscitating them. <laughs> Phoenix Pubs Limited. I saw some estimate this morning that I don't know three quarters of pubs will never reopen again. i will be absolutely screwed. So maybe after uh, having understood everything about um, uh, pensions, you can tell my friends Will and Andrew about pensions uh, that they, they didn't know about it in, uh, after PhD. You'll sure uh, resuscitate the the English pub and uh, be. If you have a statue of you, actually, I think. this will sort of this will draw together the great divide that exists in the political society and and everybody will be appraising your statue so thank you very much that andy and i wish you and digital partners every success in the future thanks very much mike it's been a pleasure thanks for listening if you have any challenges or needs with your unlisted company board get in touch with me at mike at Podcast.com.
0: We could sit in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moonrise Watching a happy moonrise Come away from the city, but with the town act so dead and the people so sad. Come away from the city, but with the faces so gray. Watch the firelight dance with me, watch the firelight dance with me Watch the firelight dance with me, watch the firelight dance with me Watch the firelight dance with me, watch the firelight dance with me Watch the firelight dance with me, watch the firelight dance with me.